turn with me, friends, to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. We are starting a new series this morning where we're going to be looking at the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. And in these chapters, we see Jesus addressing seven churches. Seven churches. And he addresses them through the pen of the apostle John, beginning right here in the passage we're going to read in Revelation chapter 1. And so over the next several weeks, we'll be examining what was written to each of these churches and their unique and varied circumstances. We're going to meet a church that was wavering and waning in their love for Jesus. We're going to meet a church that was struggling to endure in times of intense suffering. We're going to meet a church that had been infiltrated by false teachers. In other words, these are churches that are incredibly relatable. Like to me, as a, as a pastor, all these problems in all of these churches, as I read them and as I consider them, they all sound pretty familiar to me. Right? It's not a, a stretch for me to put myself in the shoes of these Christians addressed here in the book of Revelation. And if I had to guess, I think you'd probably say the same, right? So let's turn to our text. Next week, we'll start looking specifically at what was written to these seven churches. But today, I want us to see what happens leading up to that. Because you see, the word of Christ to these seven congregations scattered throughout the Roman Empire, the word of Christ to them does not come out of a vacuum. No, before John even gets to writing the first word to these churches, Jesus makes a powerful entrance. And so let's read about that together. Again, Revelation chapter 1. We'll start reading in verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. So with these verses now before us, I just want you to notice how the book of Revelation begins. It begins with three things. It begins, number one, with an exiled prisoner. It begins, number two, with an exalted priest, king, and prophet. And number three, it begins with an exact word. For Christians in need. So that's, that's the three things that we're going to look at this morning. That's where we're going. And as we look at these three things, here's what I want you to see. This is sort of the, the big idea, the big exhortation that I want you to walk away with today. That when life is hard, when life is hard, don't lose heart. Jesus has your back. He has your back. Think of the, 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 the verses we just read. Think of what happens in them. In verse 10, John says he heard a voice from where? He heard a voice from behind him. Right? And he had to turn around to see who it was that was speaking. And when he did this, what he found was that Jesus had his back. In this moment, John is experiencing what it's talking about in Isaiah chapter 58, verse 8, where it says, The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And we need that too, don't we? We need to experience what John experienced because, listen, I'm going to tell you something that you already know, but that we all need to acknowledge. Life is hard. Life is really hard. I heard someone say this past week. It's hard being human. I feel that, don't you? We, we all have a battle we're fighting. We all have some sort of struggle that we are enduring. We all have some wounds that need healing. We all have some indwelling sin that clings 
so very closely. We all have those mountains in our lives that just feel like, oh, it's never going to move. And in the midst of all of that, we need to know that we've got Jesus in our corner. We've got Jesus right there with us saying, don't worry. I'm right behind you. I've got your back. So let's press into this together, shall we? Let's start with verse 9 where John describes himself and where he describes his circumstances. His description of himself is that he is a brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So just remember, John is an apostle. He's an apostle, which means that he is a leader in the Christian church. But, but listen, John does not use his status as a leader, as a sort of like get out of jail free card. He, he doesn't use his apostleship. He doesn't leverage his apostolic status as a way of sidestepping the sufferings of the church. Now, John is on the front lines. He's leading the way. He's the first one pressing into the conflict. He's the first one pressing into the tribulation for the sake of the gospel. John has skin in the game. This is why he can say what he says. I'm your brother in this tribulation. I'm your partner in this. That's how he describes himself. Look also at how he describes his circumstances. He is an exiled prisoner, incarcerated by the Roman Empire, banished to the island called Patmos, which is located in the sea somewhere between Greece and present-day Turkey. And John tells us why it is he is there. He says it's on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. John is a persecuted Christian. As an exiled prisoner, he is sharing in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. This is something that the Apostle Peter mentions in one of his letters. In 1 Peter chapter 4, it tells us, Rejoice insofar as you share in the sufferings of Christ. For if you suffer for his name, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But Peter says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So listen, John is not an exiled prisoner because he has done something wrong. He has not been banished to the island of Patmos because he is some sort of criminal. John is not a murderer. John is not a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. No, John is there because he has obeyed. He has obeyed the Lord. He has been faithful to the word of God. He has been faithful to the testimony concerning Jesus Christ. Friends, what this reminds us is that the Christian life it's not some quid pro quo arrangement that we have with God where if we do our part, God will see to it that we have a nice, easy life. 
That's not the promise of the gospel. That's not the promise given to us as Christians. No, the promise that we have received, the promise of the gospel is that God will never leave us or forsake us. Even if your obedience to him leads you into a place of suffering, you are not alone. The God who holds all things in the palm of his hand, that same God has your back. This is what John experienced. What he experienced is just like Peter said it would be. The spirit of glory and of God has come to rest upon John in the midst of his suffering. That's what he tells us in verse 10. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So, so just to recap what we've covered so far, the Roman Empire has, has sent John to a remote island to get rid of him. Right? They were sick and tired of him going on and on about this other king who was not Caesar. He's going on and on about Jesus. He's going on and on about the kingdom of God. And so they get tired of this and they isolate him from everyone he had ever known. At this point, John is beyond the earthly reach of his family, his friends, and his fellow believers. But there on a Sunday morning, on an island in the middle of the sea, John found that he was not beyond the reach of heaven because the Spirit showed up. Right? He was there with John when no one else could be. Psalm 139 talks about this where it says, Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? The implied answer is nowhere. Right? There is not a location on the face of this earth where the presence of God will fail to be with the people of God. Where no one else can reach us. His spirit can still find us because for the arm of heaven, we are never beyond reach, friends. I wonder if there are some of us who need to be reminded of this today. It's easier than ever before to live a life that is isolated and lonely. Estrangement from others, alienation from those around us can be what can be a common everyday experience for us. And listen, this can even happen even though we are more surrounded than ever before by ways to connect with other people, right? In fact, some of the things that promise us greater connection with others only serve to make us feel more alone. There's a tragic irony in that. And maybe this has been your struggle. Maybe you walked into this place today. You've smiled at others. You've shaken hands. You've said, hello. You've been friendly. But behind all of that, underneath, there is a profound loneliness in you. Deep down, you, you're wondering if anyone will ever see you. You wonder. You, you, you think to yourself. You ask yourself, does anyone really, does anyone really notice me? And I think if John were here with us this morning, the way he would answer that question is he would say, yes. Yes, you, you are eternally noticed. 
From before the foundation of the world, you were noticed before you ever took your first breath, before you ever did anything right or wrong. The spirit of glory and of God set his sights on you. He saw you. And he sees you still. Nothing about your life escapes him. And so if you will just ask him, he will show up once again on this Sunday morning to remind you that you are not stranded. You are not alone. You are not abandoned to your loneliness. No, even if you were to run to the ends of the earth, even if you were to swim to the farthest seas, he would still be right there with you. Because friends, if you are in Christ, you will never have to live another moment without his presence. That's what John found on that Lord's Day all those years ago. In fact, it's the very thing that Jesus had told him would happen. John even wrote it down in his gospel account. In John 16, Jesus tells his disciples that when the spirit of truth comes, when he arrives, he will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and he will make it known to you. Friends, that's what the Spirit does. His work is to reveal Jesus. He takes all that is in Jesus and he brings it into our lives and he makes it known to us. In fact, this is exactly what we see happening next in our passage because look back at it. John is in the spirit on the Lord's day. And because of that, he is able to hear what Jesus has to say. It's right there in verse 11. It says, write down all that you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And then each of the seven churches is mentioned by name. But not only does John hear, he also Sees. He encounters a vision of the reigning, risen Christ. I mean, look at it. A loud voice like a trumpet resounds from behind John, and this beleaguered, exiled prisoner turns and he looks. And what does he behold? He beholds his exalted priest, king. And prophets. Historically, Christians have talked about the work of Jesus Christ in terms of these three biblical offices. Priest, king, and prophet. In the scriptures, Jesus is revealed as our heavenly high priest. He is revealed as our triumphant reigning king. And he is revealed as the prophet through whom God has spoken in these last days. And in several ways, this really comes through in John's vision. In fact, it comes through so much that I believe that these three offices are a helpful way to understand what's happening in this passage. So let's look at how some of the details that John mentions point us to Christ as our exalted priest, king, and prophet. The first clue we see is in verse 13. This verse tells us that when Jesus appears to John, he appears in the midst of seven golden lampstands. And he is clothed with a long robe 
and with a sash that is made of gold draped over his chest. This reminds us that Jesus is a great high priest in the midst of his people. For John's audience, at least those who were quite familiar with the Old Testament, and for those who were familiar with the life of Israel and with the tabernacle and the temple in Jerusalem, what John is doing here would have been obvious. It would have been apparent right away. They would have recognized what John is saying. Because the priests who served in the temple... They wore what Christ is wearing here. We see this in passages like Exodus 28, Leviticus 16. You can go read those passages later. But what these passages show is that a robe and a sash were part of the garments that the priests wore. Another thing about the priests is that they attended to the lamps in the temple. The priests made sure that the lamp stayed lit. They made sure that the flame in the temple did not die out. Friends, is that not what we see Jesus doing here? Right? It's the first thing that John mentions. Notice in verse 12, it's the first thing he describes. Because he wants us to see Jesus, to view Jesus as our great high priest. But by far the most important thing that a priest in Israel did was they offered sacrifices. They offered sacrifices to atone for the sins of God's people. They would slaughter goats and bulls and and rams and other animals, and they would use the blood from those animals for the holy purpose of turning away the wrath of God. The righteous anger and indignation that God has toward sin and sinners rested upon the slaughtered animal rather than upon his own people. And yet again, is this not what Jesus does? Right? Is this not what Jesus does for you and for me? I mean, just think for a moment about who we used to be. Think about who we once were before Jesus found us. You and me, we were dead. Right? We were dead in our sins. We were dead in our trespasses. We were unclean. Scripture tells us that we were children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. God's wrath rested upon us. And our sinful condition kept us from being able to draw near to the Lord. Isaiah 59 talks about this. It tells us that our iniquities cause a separation between us and our God. Right? Left to ourselves, we cannot enter his holy presence. We are banished and we are completely without hope of being able to draw near to him. But the gospel tells us that in Jesus, we have both a priest and a sacrifice. His death on the cross was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. We no longer need to offer the blood of animals because the blood of Christ speaks the final word over us, a word of redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And this means that we are no longer under the righteous, right, and just wrath of God. Instead, because of Jesus, there has been opened for us a new and living way. We can draw near to the presence of God with a true heart and with full assurance that he will not refuse us 
He will not reject us on account of our sin. No, he will welcome us, friends. He will embrace us. He will enthusiastically receive us. So what was once for us, a terrifying throne of wrath and judgment has now in Jesus become for us a throne of grace and mercy where we can find help in our time of greatest need. This is because Jesus is not only our sacrifice, he is also our great high priest who now stands in heaven on our behalf. So that when we feel voiceless, he is our advocate. When we feel misunderstood, he is the intercessor who sympathizes with us. When we feel forgotten, he has his name, he has our name graven upon his hand. And at this very moment, he is carrying that name. He is carrying your name and mine upon his loving heart before the throne of God above. And he does this so that even in the hardest moments of our lives, we don't have to wonder, does anyone have our back? No, the answer to that question has been eternally settled. God now sees everything about your life, your sins, your sorrows, your struggles, your sufferings. He sees it all through the priestly work of Jesus being offered in heaven on your behalf. But not only is Jesus our high priest, he's also our reigning king. Look at what else John saw. He saw that the hair of Christ was like wool, as white as freshly fallen snow. In scripture, white hair is often associated with wisdom. Listen to what Proverbs 16.31 tells us. It tells us that white hair is a crown of glory. So what John wants us to see is that these hairs upon the head of our Lord are like a royal crown. Right? They show the wisdom of his everlasting reign. They show the wisdom of his enduring rule. And the prophecy of Isaiah confirms this when it says that resting upon the Lord Jesus is a spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That's the kind of king we have in Jesus. We have a king who is infinitely wise and strong and powerful beyond measure. Jesus also saw that the eyes of Christ were like a flame or John, I'm sorry, also saw that the eyes of Christ were like a flame of fire. And that his face is like the sun shining at full strength. Friends, these are eyes that can sovereignly penetrate to the depths of any heart. This is a face that when it shines, it causes the darkness to flee in an instant. Once again, David is marveling at this in Psalm 139 where he says of God, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. For even the deepest darkness of all is as light with you, Lord. Friends, there are plenty of things that you and I cannot see or know 
or perceive. But that's not true of Jesus. That's not the case with him. His face and his eyes are radiant with an inferno of holy sovereign light. John says that the feet of Christ were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Friends, these are the feet of a conqueror. These are feet that tread upon the earth with unquestioned power and authority. The feet that at one time bled on the cross for repentant sinners are the same feet that will trample upon the unrepentant wicked. And John tells us about his voice. That the voice of Christ is like the roar, the roar of many waters. You know, sometimes, sometimes Jesus, most of the time I would say, Jesus speaks tenderly to us. Does he not? He speaks gently to us. So, so much of the time he appears to us in that still, small voice. Because he's gentle and lowly in heart. This is what makes him the merciful, sympathetic high priest that we need. But it is also true that the voice of Christ can cause the heavens to quake. It can cause his enemies to shudder. It can cause the ends of the earth to tremble with fear. This is described to us. In the 29th Psalm, where it says that the voice of the Lord is like thunder. His voice is powerful and full of majesty. It flashes forth with flames of fire. It shakes the wilderness. It strips the forest bare. So when Jesus speaks from his throne, when his voice resounds, it is not with a whimper. It is not murmuring and muttering under his breath. It is not hesitant or shy. No, it is a voice that roars louder than Niagara Falls multiplied by 10,000. Speaking of his voice, John shows that Jesus is not only our priest, not only our royal king, he is also our prophet. Look back at verse 16. It says, In his right hand were seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Friends, the word of God in the scriptures is often described to us in these very terms. Let me just give you a couple of examples. In the book of Ephesians chapter 6, Paul talks about the sword of the Spirit, which he says is the word of God. God's word is a sword. In the book of Hebrews, it says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So just notice, that, that's the same exact language that John uses to talk about the sword that is coming out of the mouth of Jesus in this passage that we're looking at today. John is wanting us to see Jesus as a prophet who speaks the very words of God. That's what a prophet does. A prophet is someone whose 
vocation it is to go to the people of God and declare, thus, thus saith the Lord. And this is exactly what we see Jesus doing here in the book of Revelation because he himself is the Lord. He is both the Lord and the prophet of the Lord who has a word to speak. He has a message, a specific message that he is wanting to get across to these seven churches. This is why he not only has a sword coming out of his mouth, but he also has seven stars in his right hand. And he is also walking in the midst of seven golden lampstands. If you were to skip down to verse 20, John gives us sort of an interpretive key to what he is seeing in his vision. He says the mystery of this is that these stars and these lampstands represent something. They represent the seven churches. The lampstands are the congregations themselves. And the stars are the leaders of these churches, the pastors. John calls them the angels of the churches. But most scholars are of the mind that John is referring specifically to those who labor among these churches as pastors. So here's what I want us to see, that, that, that whether we are members of the church, or whether we are pastors like myself, Jesus is not like other prophets for us. That's what this reminds us. He's not like other prophets. He's not like a prophet who shows up and gives his spiel and then moves on to the next thing. No, Jesus is the prophet who stays. He's the prophet who remains with his people. He abides with us. He, he holds us in his hand. He walks with us. For Jesus, we are not just some audience for him to address. No, we are the apple of his eye. We are the treasure that he holds in the palm of his hand. So we know that when he speaks, he's not barking orders at us from some great distance. He's not detached. He's not removed. He's not aloof. No, he is up close to us and he is personal. He speaks to us as his beloved bride for whom he shed his own costly blood. The purpose, friends, the purpose of Christ's prophetic office is to wash us in the water of his word. This is exactly what we'll see next. Because Christ, as priest, king, and prophet, will speak an exact word for Christians in need. Starting with John himself. In verse 17, we're told that the first thing that John does when he sees Jesus is what? He falls face down on the ground. That's the effect that Jesus has upon him. That's, that's John's gut level response to what he is seeing in this moment. And here's why I think this is so significant. It's significant because remember, this is not the first time that John had had an experience like this. You know, it, it reminds me of when I was in high school. Every summer, I would get a season pass to an amusement park not far from my house called Kings Island. You know, here, here in Kansas City, we've got worlds of fun. But in southwest Ohio, where I grew up, it was all about Kings Island. Kings Island. 
And so over the summer, pretty much every week, me and my friends, we would all get together and, and we would go to Kings Island. And I remember one year I was so excited to get my season pass because Kings Island had just come out with a brand new roller coaster called Son of Beast. If it sounds epic, it's because it was. It was quite epic. The thing that made Son of Beast so special was that it was promised to have something that no other roller coaster had. And I didn't know if this was like a rumor or if it was fact, but I had heard that, that Son of Beast was an all-wooden roller coaster. But it was the only roller coaster in the world that went upside down. And it turns out this was true. The ride involved one of those loop-to-loop things where, you know, your feet are in the air and your hair is hanging down. And I remember riding Son of Beast for the first time thinking, this is awesome. This is the best roller coaster I've ever been on. This is quite possibly the most thrilling moment I have ever had in my short life. But then I rode it again. And then I rode it again and again and again and again throughout the whole summer. And you know what? It started to lose its luster a little bit. It started to feel a little less special. It got a little less exciting until I reached the point where I was pretty much over it. I had gotten over Son of Beast. When you see John's response in verse 17, you realize that the glory of Christ is something that you will never get over. You will never get over it. I mean, just, just, just think about what John had experienced throughout his apostleship. John saw Jesus in his transfiguration. He was there on the mountain when the humanity of Christ revealed the glory of the divinity of Christ. And then later on, John saw the risen Jesus. Right after, after some days, Jesus appeared to John and the disciples with a new and glorious resurrection body. Oh, and then John was there too when Jesus ascended into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father on high. John had seen and experienced all these things firsthand. He was an eyewitness of all of these moments. And what I find so telling is at this point, when Christ appears to John, you know what he doesn't say? He doesn't go, yeah, I've already seen this. Been there, done that. I know what this is all about. No, that's not what John does. That's not what he says. Instead, what John does is he can't say anything at all. All he can do is just fall to pieces. Right? He melts, he collapses at the feet of the Lord, and he is so arrested by the glory of what he is beholding that he says, it's as though I was dead. Unlike Son of Beast, which got old to me, when we see the Son of Man, the very sight of him will never fail to astound us endlessly with a holy bone-chilling reverence for the Lord. In the blink of an eye, he can lay us flat on the ground. 
unable to move, unable to speak, unable to pick ourselves up underneath the awesome weight of his glory. And yet, listen to this. He doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us on the ground. Because look at what he does. John says, he laid his right hand upon me. And he spoke these words to me. Fear not. I'm the first and the last and I'm the living one and I died. And behold, I am alive. And guess what? I have the keys to death and hell. I mean, with these words, is Jesus not preaching the gospel to John? Right in this moment where John is completely undone, Jesus announces good news to him. He says, don't be afraid, John. Don't be scared. Remember who I am. I'm the first and the last. Remember what I've done. I died on the cross and I walked out of that tomb. Remember what I have. I have the keys to death and Hades. John, are you so worried that you're going to die out here on this island, cold and alone? Well, get this, because of me, death is a defeated, domesticated foe. It obeys my voice. And Jesus can say that and mean it because he kicked down the door of death. He went into the house. He plundered it. And for good measure, he grabbed the keys on his way out so that he could mock the grave. So we can say with him, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? You know, sometimes for convenience's sake, I clip my keys on my belt loop. And as I kind of saunter through the house, at a rare quiet moment at our house, you can hear my keys sort of jingle jangling. I like to think that when Jesus strolled out of the tomb on that third day, you hear the keys of death and Hades jingle jangling. Friends, what John is reminded of here and what we so desperately need to be reminded of today is not only does Jesus have our back, praise be to God for that, but he has also placed his hand on our shoulder. And we also have the voice of his gospel sweetly ringing in our ear. And get this, this is no less true when like John, you find yourself in the last place you ever wanted to be. If Jesus can show up for an exiled prisoner in the first century, he can show up for you today. You may feel weak and needy, lonely and afraid, struggling and stumbling and unable to get yourself together. But Jesus can show up in a moment and he can place his hand on your shoulder and he can say the words that you've been longing to hear. Listen, I've got your back. I'm right here with you. You are mine, and so I'm not going anywhere. I've spared no expense to have you as my own treasured possession. That's what Jesus does for his people, friends. He is present with us. He reaches for us, and he speaks to us the exact word that we need to hear when things are not okay. In fact, in fact, this is what we're going to see in the coming weeks. There are seven churches 
seven different communities of Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire that Jesus has in mind. And he commands John to deliver his sovereign word to each of them. Send from Patmos. Tell them what you've seen. Tell them what you've heard. Tell them what's going to happen. To Christians who had abandoned the love they once had for the Lord, Jesus tells them, I loved you first. I loved you before you can ever love me. So go back to the basics. Go back to square one. Do the works that you once did. To Christians who are getting ready to suffer intense persecution, Jesus says, be faithful unto death. And I promise, I'm going to give you the crown of life. To Christians who are indulging in sexual immorality, Jesus says, repent of your sin. And guess what? I'll feed you and satisfy you with bread from heaven above. For Christians who were tolerant of false teaching, Jesus says, stop entertaining those satanic lies. Those are broken cisterns. Those are empty wells. Come back to me. Give your heart to me and you will receive a truth that sets you free. To Christians who were showing no signs of life, Jesus says, wake up. Get out of bed and lay hold of the strength that is in me so that you can truly live. To Christians who were, rema- who were remaining faithful, despite the fierce opposition they were facing, Jesus says, I promise you, no one's going to seize your crown. No one can take from you what I have given because I have written my name on you. You belong to me. I purchased you with my own blood. And to Christians who were lukewarm, indifferent, ambivalent toward the things of God, like I am so often. To Christians like this, Jesus says, I stand at the door. Can you hear my gentle knocking? Can you hear the rapping of my nail-scarred hand? If you open the door, I will draw near to you. And I will nourish you with the true food and true drink that only I can give. In fact, this is what we're going to do here in a moment. We get to do this today. We get to come to the table and be with Jesus. We get to be fed by him. In a moment, we're going to receive communion. But before we do, I just want to give you some space to maybe consider your own life a little bit. Maybe you want to ask yourself, what am I struggling with? What's the battle I'm facing? What's the mountain that for me feels like it'll never move? What's the sin that I need to repent of this morning? Friends, think about that just for a moment as you come to the table. We don't have to be scared of questions like that. We don't, have to, we don't have to be scared to get real with God. It's because of the passage, what we've seen in our passage today, that has shown us that when life is hard, when the battle is raging, when the struggle is real, when we're so weak that we feel like we can't take another step, I want you to hear me say, More importantly, I want you to hear Jesus say, don't lose heart. Don't despair. Don't give in. Don't throw in the towel because someone has your back. And not just any someone. 
the first and the last. If you don't know Jesus this morning, if you don't know what it's like for him to have your back, we want to invite you today to place your faith in him. Turn away from your sins. Turn away from those things that you're doing that displease God. Turn away from how you've been living and turn toward Jesus in a posture of trust. Call upon the name of the Lord and his promise to you is that you will be saved. He will become your great high priest before the Father. He will become the king who for you, he, he brings you underneath his loving lordship. Everything in your life will come under him. And he will be the prophet who speaks to you in your time of need the exact word that you need. You trust him, he will do all these things and more. But we also want to say that if you don't know Jesus, we ask you not to come to this table. Don't come forward and take this meal with us. It, it's not that we want you to feel excluded or, or, or singled out or anything like that. It's not that at all. It's just that for us, this is a family meal. This is a meal for Christians. This is a meal for those who have put their faith in Jesus. So instead of joining us at the table, why not consider what the table means to us? That Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. 